Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. A new movie called Spotlight once again shines a light on the decades-long scandal of sexual abuse by priests in the Catholic Church. The stars of the movie are the Boston Globe investigative reporters who broke the story. This began a nationwide examination of church practices, cover-ups of rape and abuse, the hiding of pedophile priests, the quiet settlements, and strong-arm tactics meant to silence victims and their families. In the Diocese of Bridgeport, thousands of pages of court documents, long kept secret, were released. In Hartford and Hamden, victims came forward and continue to. Jury selection just got underway this week in the trial of a priest accused of sexually abusing a teenage boy. Today, where we live, we'll walk through what we've learned about this story with reporters and with the victim. We'll also hear how a whistleblower came forward in the state of Minnesota, leading to a public radio investigation that prompted changes in the church there. You can join the conversation, 860 275-7266, 270-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In a moment, we'll turn to the film Spotlight and a Boston Globe columnist to follow the story all throughout. But first, I want to turn to a reporter of the Hartford Current, Dave Altamari, who is on the investigative desk there and who's covered the story for years. And Dave, first of all, welcome uh, to the program. Thanks so much for coming in. Good morning, Jim. Uh, We're going to talk about the scandal that unfolded in Boston, but obviously this abuse happened around the nation, around the world. Give us some background on how uh, the sex abuse scandal has has really impacted Connecticut. Well, Connecticut had uh, several significant cases. Um, uh, The biggest one was against the Bridgeport Diocese. Uh, There was a lawsuit that was filed uh, that well, they fought um, tooth and nail, uh, went to the Supreme Court uh, twice, uh, ultimately took seven years for the court to finally rule that, um, well, I think it was more than 12,000 pages that were eventually released um, about uh, that had information on seven different priests within the diocese that had been moved around. Um, the most interesting one was a guy named Lawrence Brett, that we actually, at, at the current, a uh, couple of reporters actually tracked down living in St. Martin's. Uh, the church had claimed that they didn't know where he was, that they had uh, uh, he had left and they had kind of washed their hands of him, and then it turned out there were still actually people in the diocese who, who were in touch with him and knew where he was. Um, we had gotten some of the documents that were released leaked to us during the seven years that the case uh, was pending and they showed that uh, the two bishops, uh, uh, Curtis, who had passed away by then, and more importantly, uh, Edward Egan, who went on to become the, um, went on to become, moved to New York, uh, had, had, had a history of moving some of these guys around within the diocese. Uh, it was very similar to what happened in Boston um, uh, and what happened across the country. You said you had uh, documents leaked to you. Uh, Maybe you can explain a little bit of the process of how you, in the absence of information, uh, with so many of these records sealed, how you were able to to track people down, how you were able to do the reporting. Most of these cases were 
uh, lawsuits were filed by victims, mostly who were anonymous, John Doe or Jane Doe's. And so there were cases, court cases, that were com- almost completely sealed, other than that there was a docket number. And there were obviously lawyers and experts and people who were involved. Uh, who uh, This became almost a cottage industry across the country uh, where all these, dias- all these lawsuits were filed um, once this uh, became a big, a big scandal. And so there were people who came in from all over the country uh, who, who worked for defense lawyers or who worked for the diocese on particular cases who had access to information. Um, and at times, that was uh, certainly for a while. That was one of the only ways to get information on some of these cases if somebody leaked it to you, or to get lucky. There was one case uh, we had involving a Hartford priest who was uh, used to be the state police chaplain, and him his M.O. was that he would give kids rides in the in his cruiser out to scenes, take them to accidents and stuff, and then molest them. And just happened that. Uh, my youngest, my oldest daughter played basketball at St. Thomas, the, the seminary, and I noticed a old state police cruiser was always parked in the back every time we went to play basketball. So I asked somebody in the DMV to run the license plate for me, and it turned out to be this guy, Stephen Foley, who was the state police chaplain, who had been basically accused of molesting several children, uh, at the, several boys, and had been relieved of his duties, quietly relieved of his duties. So he was living at the seminary, uh, matter of fact, living right next to the former Archbishop Cronin. Uh, they were paying him a salary. He was driving around in a cruiser just like he always had been. Uh, and it was, they were completely fine with that until we started writing about it. I'm wondering if you can maybe talk a bit more about the extent to which uh, the church in Hartford and Bridgeport the extent to which they they really went to enormous lengths to keep uh, this secret, to hide the fact that these that these folks and their actions were were very well known. Well, Bridgeport spent seven years fighting the um, fighting us in court to release the documents. Uh, they were adamant. They, they there were two different rulings against them in supreme in superior court that they that they appealed, uh, ordering that the documents be released. Um, they spent. Uh, they spent a lot of money lobbying um, at the at the legislature to to try to uh, uh, make sure the laws weren't changed and to keep things sealed. Um, the time frame when this was going on, you have to remember, there were a lot of other. It was an interesting time in the Connecticut judicial. There was this secret cases that we ultimately wrote about, where there were cases that were not even on the docket that that they had set up. Um, and so they spent a lot of time trying to keep these documents from becoming public because a lot of it was the timing of it. Uh, Egan was up for a big promotion, and I think that they didn't want anything to come out that would, would potentially hurt his candidacy. Um, and so they, they fought seven years, I think it was more than seven years before we finally, they finally they actually had, they tried to get the case before the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was the last step. They were turned down, and then the documents were released. And again, your, your newspaper, the Hartford Current, was fighting alongside the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe for the release of these documents. Yes, the the, the uh, what happened in a lot of these cases. Um, the the actually the, the cases actually started down in Louisiana, but then the Glo- the Globe's series is when the the whole scandal really took off. Um, 
And then you saw similar things in Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Los Angeles. And so because Egan was such a well-known person nationally, uh, it, it made sense that it was going to be a big deal here, too. We're talking with Dave Altamari, who's a reporter for the Hartford Current's investigative unit, about some of the reporting that he and his colleagues have done on the clergy sex abuse scandal, something we're talking about now on WNPR's Where We Live because of this brand-new movie called Spotlight. We've got two stories here, a story about degenerate clergy and a story about a bunch of lawyers turning child abuse into a cottage industry. Which story do you want us to write? Because we're writing one of them. Crazy. They control everything. This is not just Boston. It's a whole country. It's a whole world. They knew and they let it happen. It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. That's from the trailer to the new movie Spotlight that's just out, and it tells the story of the Boston Globe investigative unit that broke this story that, of course, then, as we've said, went nationwide. I want to bring in Eileen McNamara, who's a journalism professor at Brandeis University, former columnist for the Boston Globe. She uh, has a small role in this movie Spotlight, but a very large role in how this story got told. And Eileen, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm wondering first if you can explain your role at the Globe at this time and how you fit into this ins- entire story. You're you're not part of the Spotlight team that is uh, depicted there, but again, your work played a very pivotal role. Well, it was really happenstance. Um, we had a serious case of a, a clerical uh, child abuse in Boston, a priest named Father Gagan, and. Uh, the church had, as it did all over the country, as Dave has pointed out, uh, had all those records sealed so that we couldn't get access uh, to the background information, to his personnel file, to see whether he had been moved multiple times, as was beginning to seem like the, the pattern. Uh, as Dave said, we saw it in Louisiana in 1992. I mean, the Globe didn't discover the uh, sexual abuse of children. Jason Berry did, who ironically was a reporter for the National Catholic Reporter. Um, so you didn't have to be secularist to discover that this was out there. Uh, I happen to have written a couple of columns about Gagan, specifically about uh, the frustration as a journalist not to be able to have access to the records because all of these records have been sealed. And I wrote a particularly impassioned one um, in July of 2001 saying uh, we won't find out what's really the truth here, if whether Gagan is an aber- aberration, as Cardinal Law kept saying, or whether, in fact, he was the tip of an iceberg. And the Boston Globe had just gotten a new editor that very week. So my uh, column ran on Sunday. He started his job at the Globe on Monday. And on his way to the 1030 meeting that morning, he stopped at my desk and said, uh, I read your column, and I'm curious if we're so aggravated by the presence of that seal, why don't we challenge it in court? And I said, well, that's a wonderful idea. (laughs) That, frankly, never would have occurred to previous editors of the Boston Globe. I mean, it's a very Catholic town. We've had very Mm -hmm. Catholic editors. Our new editor was Marty Barron, a very distinguished guy who had come in from the Miami Herald. Um. And he acted on that impulse. On his very first day, he called the Globe's lawyers, and we filed a motion to challenge the seal. 
And, and you mentioned the fact that this is a you know a Catholic paper, a Catholic town, and and as as I talked to Dave about how this unfolded in Hartford and Bridgeport and across Connecticut, obviously there's a a very large population of Catholics here in our state. But maybe you can explain, Eileen, just the pull, the power that the Catholic Church has in the city of Boston at that time, and why it would be so unthinkable to to do such a thing, to make such a challenge. Well, they're a political force in Massachusetts, especially in Boston, but, you know, across the state. And when you think of the obstacles that victims faced in trying to get justice after they were molested by priests, um, there was a statute of limitations of three years in Massachusetts where you could bring a child abuse claim um, against someone. Uh, There had been efforts in the legislature for years to extend that uh, limitation. The church opposed it. Uh, There were attempts across the years to get clergy named as mandatory reporters if they suspected child abuse. So his colleagues who saw Father Gagan take young boys into the rectory would have been mandated by state law to report that to social service uh, officials. But the church opposed that extension to clergy. Um, and as Dave's pointed out, once this story started to break, they fought uh, like hell, so to speak, uh, to keep reporters from getting access to the personal rec- personnel records, which proved the larger systemic problem. Not simply that there were priests who were abusing children, but there were bishops across the country who were covering it up. Hey, Eileen, this is Dave. Um, Hi, Dave. I wanted to come up with a, just run in for a quick question. The same thing was happening here in Connecticut. They fought for years, uh, lobbied for years in the legislature to keep the statute of limitations on when you could file a complaint. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, they, they went to court, they went back to the Supreme Court not, not even more than a year ago trying to change the, the new law, which had extended that. Uh, they lost that again, but they're still fighting that even today, that, that statute of limitations issue, because it op- has opened up, obviously, opened up almost the second and third round of lawsuits that they had to, that they had to deal with. Well, and frankly, what's frustrating um, from our perspective, I think, as journalists, we're being asked to believe that the church is doing everything it can now. That's, the Spotlight movie is a, a nostalgia piece. But it isn't, because the church is still resisting commonsensical efforts to open up the secrets. And this has even in, come up in the Pope's recent visit to the United States and some of his comments. There's a sense, Eileen, that, uh, that the church wants to paint this as, as something that is in the past. And as we're going to be talking about in just a, a little bit, this is obviously something that is, that is still happening. Are you, are you surprised that this many years later we're still seeing this unfold in the way that it is unfolding uh, all across America, even, even today? No, frankly, I'm not. I mean, you don't put up this much resistance at the outset and for the 14 years that have followed since the Spotlight series. And it was 1992 when Jason Barry first put a spotlight, his own spotlight on this issue. If you fight and resist this hard, there's a piece missing in the church's thinking about this issue. I mean, you made reference to Pope Francis's comments in Philadelphia when he was here on his U.S. swing. Um, He talked about how tragic and painful the sex abuse scandal was for priests and bishops. There's 
there's something missing at the upper, upper reaches of the church that does not understand the magnitude of the damage that has been done to good, God-fearing Catholics. They're clearly... Uh the culture of the church for so long was to hide this or to, to keep it secret that it's going to take a long time to change that. Uh, and what, and what yeah. motivates that is that the clergy and the hierarchy believe that their fundamental responsibility is not to bring scandal upon the church. And that's what's motivating them. It's part of canon law that one should not bring scandal on the church. Well, the scandal's out there, and now it's your responsibility to cooperate with civil authorities to bring people to justice who've harmed children. We're talking with Eileen McNamara, who's a journalism professor at Brandeis University, a former columnist for the Boston Globe, also Dave Altamari, who's a reporter for the Hartford Current's investigative desk, and we're talking about the continuing story of clergy sex abuse in America, and it's being highlighted by this new movie, Spotlight. When we come back, we're going to hear the story of Jim Hackett, who's a childhood victim of clergy sex abuse. We'll take some of your phone calls as well at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today in the program, we're talking about the Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal as highlighted by this new movie, Spotlight, which tells the story of Boston Globe investigative reporters that blew open this case. Of course, this is something that's gone on for quite some time before this investigative unit uh, started digging into it. We're going to be talking more about how this unfolded in the state of Minnesota and a public radio reporter uh, who made a change happen in Minnesota because of her work. That's coming up in a bit. We're talking now with Eileen McNamara, who's a journalism professor at Brandeis University, former columnist for the Boston Globe, who wrote about one of these cases and got the spotlight team interested in it uh, some years ago. Dave Altamari, a reporter for the Hartford Current's investigative desk, who's reported on this issue in Hartford and Bridgeport. Uh, I, I do want to mention that we've reached out to the Diocese of Bridgeport and the Archdiocese of Hartford, who were unable to join us for today's program. We do hope to have them for some future conversation on this issue. I want to bring in Jim Hackett, who's a childhood victim of clergy sex abuse. He's a member of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. And Jim, welcome to our program. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could briefly for us share your story and how you ended up as part of this story and how you ended up having your story told nationally. Sure. Um, in 1976, I was attending uh, junior high school, uh, Blessed Sacrament Parish, and uh, the young priest there who uh, was overseeing altar boys and taking them to amusement parks and movies and stuff like that to entertain them. I don't know why, but um, eventually uh, the relationship ended up where he had brought me into the basement of the rectory and we were playing pool at the pool table. Um, he ended up uh, tickling me, wrestling me to the couch, and dry humping me from the backside until he orgasmed. Um, in an instant, my childhood was taken from me. I woke up a happy-go-lucky kid that day. And I went to bed an anger, angry young man. Um, for the next 25 years, all the, the development and growing that I did was, was done in an environment uh, filled with hate internally, um, lashing out against authority figures, whether it was school or parents or stuff like that. Um, so that event just uh, changed my life dramatically. How did you decide to start to talk about what happened to you? Um, in 2002, when Connecticut changed the laws, somebody filed an anonymous uh, case against Louis Paterzo, who molested me. 
And at that point, I'm a married man with two young kids, and I start to think about the history of all that. And all those uh, feelings of anger and a lot of sleepless nights started happening again 25 years later. And at that point, I figured uh, people need to know that this man did these things, and I was willing to, to put my name and face out there to say, yeah, he's a child molester. He did it to me. I just wanted people to know uh, what he was. And, and when you say when Connecticut changed the laws, just to be clear about what you mean, what laws changed? Uh, the statute of limitations for bringing uh, a civil suit uh, got extended. And the the notion that that law changed and allowed you to talk about this then so many years later is is something that as the story unfolded back in the early 2000s, as we heard about what was happening in Boston and then across the nation, I, I think many people, especially supporters of the Catholic Church, said, well, why is it taking so long? Why, why are we hearing these stories 20 years after? Can you talk about that, Jim, a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, at the time when it happened, I mean, I was a, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid, and that's a very difficult time in, in your life anyway. You go from uh, being in a grammar school, all of a sudden you're thrown into a junior high school with a bunch of people you don't know. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the social back and forth. You're, you're becoming an adult at that point. And there's a lot of uh, things that you don't understand. You're learning as you grow and so forth. Yeah. I, a okay, lot of ahead. the victims yeah. that I've that I, I've talked to were afraid as, as well. I mean, the priest uh, yeah. was a was an important figure in there. If you're a religious person and you're going to church, you're, the, the priest is an important figure in your life. You spend time with them. You look up to them. You're uh, a lot of these people were you know a lot of the, these victims were around Jim's age or even younger. Uh, so it, it, it's all of a sudden you're. This is a person that you've looked up to who is now doing something that you can't even fathom. Yeah, I, I, and, and, and I'll just and I'll just say too that growing up Catholic myself, there's also it be it's beyond the power of like a, a parent or a, an uncle or a coach. There's a mystical power that comes with with what a priest is supposed to be if you grow up in the church. Absolutely, the priest is always seen as, as somebody who's up on a pedestal. I mean, when the the school was in uh, the Memorial Day parade, all the the little old ladies by the side of the road are screaming, "Father Lou, Father Lou!" Everybody loved the guy. They thought he was wonderful. And I mean, like I was saying, you know, it's a difficult time enough being a, a young person growing up in uh, you know your young teens, and to have all of a sudden this over your head that, oh, that's the kid who got molested by the priest. You don't want that. So we just wanted it to stop, and we didn't want anybody to know about it. So sweeping it under the rug kind of seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, in hindsight, obviously not, though. And, and Dave, uh, Jim's story that he's telling uh, is a very is obviously a very personal story to him, but it's very much exactly like so many of the other stories that you told. Like, like so many that you hear, it very starts the same way that you know they become you know an altar boy or join some group uh, where they're in a situation, a social situation with the priest, and then they end up alone with that priest, or he takes them on trips. Uh, they go to like cottages or whatever for sleep, you know, like sleepaway camp type of situations. That's what a lot of the Bridgeport ones were. And the, so they're all very similar. Um, Pater, Paterzo was one of the priests that there was uh, involved in the settlement in Hartford um, uh, back in uh, 2005. It was a $22 million settlement. There were, I think it was 14 or 15 priests involved. Uh, Foley, the guy that I... Uh, mentioned who was uh, drove around the state police cruiser was one of them. Paterzo was another one. There were a lot of priests that no one really knew about. 
uh, who had any allegations against them who were part of that settlement. Um, and that was the big settlement in the Hartford Archdiocese. It was done quietly at, through, a, uh, through a federal court uh, judge who was a good at uh, mediating cases, and they ended up paying out $22 million to a wide variety of victims. Eileen, I, I want to bring you back in because I, I think that the the judiciary's role certainly in uh, the Boston cases is very important, too. I'm wondering if you can talk about that because it's not just the power of the church, but it's also the way in which the judiciary uh, worked in Massachusetts to help cover up these cases. Yeah, I think in Boston it was particularly striking because uh, the judiciary was dominated by Irish Catholics. Um, in Boston, um, the sign of uh, ascendancy in your career is if you're a triple eagle. You went to Boston College High School, you went to Boston College, and you went to Boston College Law School. And the Massachusetts legislature is stacked with those people, and so is the Massachusetts judiciary, which explains how the church got what it wanted uh, on Beacon Hill and uh, in the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened in these cases is the judges generally didn't even have hearings when uh, the archdiocese would ask that the records be impounded or sealed. Uh, They simply did it as a matter of deference to the church. And what was stunning about uh, what happened ultimately in Boston, and what frankly makes the movie such a compelling film, is um, it took one of our own to stand up to the church. I used to regularly you know, write notes once a year when the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library gives out its Profiles in Courage Award to urge people to give that award to Constance Sweeney, who is a superior court judge in Massachusetts, who uh, not only unsealed the documents, but from the bench had some strong things to say to the archdiocese about their civic responsibilities. Uh, that was pretty amazing, given how many Irish Catholic judges had were complicit in sealing those records, one of whom I am embarrassed for him to say was the lawyer who represented the Globe for years in uh, First Amendment cases. Mm. Uh, Jim, I want to ask you about your, your settlement with the Church. And tell me about that, your decision, and what that meant to you in your life. Well, it's um, interesting because... You know, when I decided to come forward, I, I went to my family lawyer and told them that, you know, I wanted to back up this story that was out there and uh, just to let people know. But I didn't want to get myself into trouble by doing it. Uh, I ended up uh, working with a law firm out of Bridgeport that had worked on the Bridgeport settlement. Um, and it was interesting because this is the first time that I had told anybody this story outside of my parents who I told when it initially happened. Uh, so for 25 years, you, you're keeping this inside. Now all of a sudden I'm telling uh, two, three strangers at a time exactly what happened in detail and and how it made me feel and what it did to me and stuff like that. So it was actually a very therapeutic thing to be able to come out and talk about it. And when the settlement happened and I was seeing his name and his face and he's being accused and he's admitting that he had problems in the past, uh, that that was such a gratifying thing to finally come to that point where it's like, you know, all these years I've known about this, and the people thought he was wonderful, but no, he's, he wasn't. I'm wondering, though, how how it strikes you. So many victims of crime, when they get to um, face the person who, who hurt them, it, it's seen as an outlier, right? This is a, a terrible thing that happened to you, and once this person has to pay for what they did, 
then the world moves on. But as you watch this, you're, you're part of something that happened all over America, all over the world. It's the subject of a brand new movie. And because of that movie, hopefully many more people like you will start to tell their story. I guess I'm wondering how how it feels to be brave enough to tell the story publicly, but then to be part of this wave of people who are just, Jim, just like you. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting because for 10 years now I've been, I've been talking about my story to various groups and uh, working with SNAP, doing support group meetings and stuff like that, so it's, it's kind of become routine. But, you know, I hear some of the clips from the movie that are being played and, uh, you know, the emotions just grab you. You just want to come to tears thinking about these children and then you realize, wait, I'm one of those kids. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a strange feeling. I, I, I should ask, Dave, you know, obviously this, this does continue. We read in your newspaper this week that uh, another trial begins uh, j- just now of a priest accused of uh, sexually abusing a young boy from East Windsor, I believe. Yes, uh, I believe the uh, trial is going to start around Thanksgiving. Um, uh, this is another priest that uh, has, no, has no record or any history of any previous abuse cases. Um, uh, so it's kind of... Uh, uh, came out of the blue. Um, the trial's going to, st- uh, he's accused of molesting this teenage boy and also using him to buy guns. Uh, so it's got a little, it's a strange case all the way around. Um, there are, even though a lot of cases were settled, there were some attorneys here in Connecticut that, that didn't want to settle their cases. Well, uh, there's a guy out of London, Bob Reardon, who basically was opposed to settlement, and he took a lot of cases to trial. A lot of them were against the Norwich Diocese, the third diocese in Connecticut. Um, but he also had some cases against this guy, Stephen Foley. And a lot of times what happens, the church will fight these cases uh, because they think ultimately that the person who's been known as Jim, you know, Jane Doe or, or John Doe will not want to get on the stand and testify. So they, they'll push it right until they were the last couple of cases I covered involved uh, a priest down in uh, Norwich by the name of Shea, Thomas Shea, and he actually molested a bunch of uh, girls. Um, and they they took a couple of cases right to the edge of going to trial before they settled them. Uh, I think they try to uh, see if the person will follow through uh, ultimately to the end because eventually if it does go to trial, you're going to have to get up on the stand and you know, say my name is Jim Hackett, and here's my story, and you know, and, and be cross-examined by an attorney. Uh, it, it's obviously a, a, a traumatic, reliving the whole traumatic experience again. So they they play them out as much as they can if they don't settle the cases. Eileen, I, I want to ask you briefly about something you've written about. Um, is that the victims of clergy sex abuse are not just young boys and men, although these are many of the stories we've heard. There, there are often stories of young women and girls. Can you talk about that and how we don't hear about that quite as much? Yeah, sure. I, um, I think it, it was sort of an undertold story and has been an undertold story. Um, a lot of uh, priest abusers are uh, equal opportunity child molesters. Uh, they chose boys more often maybe because they had greater access to them um, because at the time a lot of these cases happened, there were altar boys, there weren't altar girls. Girls might be more likely to tell their moms. Um, there seems to be lots of reasons for the skewed numbers, uh, but there were plenty of young girls that were victimized by 
all of these priests. And uh, I think part of the reason that the young boys got as much attention was the church's attempt to to conflate child sexual abuse with homosexuality. So the church's initial reaction when the scandal broke in 2002 was to say, well, we have to address the issue of homosexuality in the priesthood. This issue has nothing to do with homosexuality. It's got everything to do with perhaps the celibacy rule and also power. This is a power imbalance. Rape is always about somebody exerting power over somebody uh, more vulnerable. I, Jim, I'd love to get your, your take on something we read, actually, in the Boston Globe, that uh, Catholic Church leaders have been sending talking points to dioceses around the country in preparation for the release of this movie, Spotlight. Uh, talking points said to highlight the Church's progress uh, in in dealing with this issue, in in trying to put this, as we've said before, behind us. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, um, in, in reading the statements, it seems like he's trying to please whatever crowd he's in front of. You know, when he's in front of the bishops, he's telling them for being proud to be standing up strong and all this. And in front of victims, he apologizes to them. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of a, a story that happened when I was in junior high school where I was molested. Um, you know, one of my uh, classmates was a real Weisenheimer, and he did something that ticked off the teacher, and she was berating him. And when she was done, he just sat back with a smirk and said, sorry. And she got fire engine red. She looked at him with laser beams, and she said, you're not sorry you did it. You're sorry you got caught. Mm. And uh, that seems to ring true to the church's response to these things. They're not taking a proactive stance. Yeah. Well, and, and Dave, not taking a proactive stance in, in the way that we'd all hope, but they're trying to take a proactive stance as this movie comes out, essentially saying, here's what, here's what message the church should communicate to parishioners as the movie comes out. Right. They had that, that that is their MO when when this whole scandal broke, they you know, the, they had priests and bishops address their individual parishes and individual and 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 try to downplay it. Uh so I I would I wasn't surprised that now that the movie's coming out and it's going to be a mainstream, it's going to come back in the mainstream again that uh, they that they would do the same thing. It's it's typical of their MO in these cases. Hey, Eileen, we just have 30 seconds left, but I, I do want to ask you a question that somebody wanted to pose to you is, whatever became of Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston? Well, in a way, it, it's sort of symbol, symbol, a symbol, excuse me, I'm tripping over my wounds. It's, um, and it's also symptomatic of the way that church behaves in these cases. Uh, Law was basically driven from Boston. He uh, was no longer the Archbishop of Boston, but he did not lose his red hat. He was still a cardinal. He was still eligible to vote um, for the next pope and the pope after that. Uh, He was enshrined in a basilica in uh, Rome, considered one of the most prestigious appointments. He was in the inner circle of the previous two popes. Um, it seemed to a lot of us in Boston that the appropriate response of the church would have been to send Cardinal Law uh, to South America, to Africa, and have him live in poverty and repent his sins and serve the poor. Hmm. That didn't happen. Eileen McNamara is a journalism professor at Brandeis University and a former columnist for the Boston Globe. She joined us by phone today. Eileen, thank you so much. 
You're welcome. Thanks also to Dave Altamari, who's a reporter on the Hartford Current's investigative desk. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Jim. And thanks to Jim Hackett. He's a childhood victim of clergy sex abuse and a member of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. It's called SNAP. Jim, thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. And we're going to put uh, links on our site to snapnetwork.org if you'd like to tell your story or get involved. When we come back, we're going to meet a Minnesota public radio reporter who helped tell the story of a cover-up in that state. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up tomorrow, two weeks ago, China announced a change to its one-child policy. We'll take a look at what this means for the country and for the world. We'll also check in on U.S.-China business relations and find out how a Chinese-proposed shipping canal could be an economic driver or maybe an environmental disaster for Nicaragua. Join our conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today we've been talking about the Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal as told by the new movie called Spotlight. We've been uh, talking about how this story has unfolded in Hartford and Bridgeport as well. But now I want to bring in Madeline Barron, who's an investigative reporter at Minnesota Public Radio. She joins us from a studio there. And Madeline, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You have been telling a story over the last few years that uh, is fairly amazing. You and I talked at a journalism conference not too long ago about the work that you've done in Minnesota, and it's prompted quite a bit of change in that state. I'm wondering, first of all, if you can talk about how the the story of a cover-up within um, Minnesota and the Catholic Church came to your attention in the first place. Sure. Well, this all started with a phone call one day in the newsroom, and it was from a woman who had served as a top advisor to the archbishop here, Archbishop John Ninestead, and she had resigned a few months earlier. This is in 2013. And she'd resigned, she said, because she was concerned that the church was failing to deal with clergy who had been accused of sexually abusing children. And so she called, and I talked to her, and we went from there, um, ended up talking to other key sources as well over several months um, before we even published our first story and ended up with what is the largest known leak of internal documents from any Catholic diocese in the country. Here's actually a clip from your documentary called Betrayed by Silence, and the woman's name is Jennifer Hasselberger. I absolutely believe that we have priests in our parishes currently who have either committed acts of sexual abuse against a minor or who we have more than adequate reason to believe are capable of doing so. In your documentary, Madeline, you go deep into what happened next after this, including following this story all the way to Louisiana and really uncovering a network, a web of cover-ups and ways in which the church shuffled either priests or bishops from one place to another. I'm wondering if you can take us on a brief tour of, of where all you went in search of the story. Sure. Well, we started in Minnesota, where we found that, contrary to church policy, they the archdiocese here had kept abusers in ministry um, and not warned the public. We found, in one case, one of the men was teaching sex ed to teenagers when we found him. We also found that the number of accused priests that the church had told the public was inaccurate, and the actual number was more than double that. But what we wanted to really do is to trace this scandal far back to its origins, because the bishop here, during a really critical point in the cover-up, um, his name is Archbishop Harry Flynn, 
he had gotten his he had started his career as a bishop in Louisiana at ground zero, basically, of the clergy sex abuse scandal in this country. And he had promised he had said over the years that he had healed the diocese, that he had met with every victim in the diocese um, in Louisiana. And he went on to, in response to the Boston Globe coverage, be a really key figure in the national conversation around this in 2002. And in fact, he even uh, chaired the committee that drafted the church's new policy on clergy sex abuse. So we went to Louisiana, uh, a producer and I, to find out if Bishop Flynn's claims that he healed the diocese were true and if the whole narrative around Flynn was true as well, that he was a great pick for the church in this crisis in 2002 because he was a reformer. And what we found there was that, no, he had not met with all of the victims of clergy sex abuse there. And in fact, he had worked with attorneys to seal most of the documents about abusive priests. And in one case, I even talked to a family who said that they did meet with Flynn, and Flynn told them, point blank, he was there to protect the church. Hmm. The the thing that your documentary allows us to do is hear the voices of, of some of these people, including uh, the way in which uh, Flynn talked to the press or talked in front of groups of people. And it, it tells a story, Madeline, of, of someone who is very convincing in making the case that he is taking on this problem head on. He's looking out for the church, certainly, but he's looking out for victims as well. And this is this is part of what allowed this cover-up to happen, that essentially a very, very charismatic figure and, and a few charismatic figures that you that you write about and report on are able to essentially make people believe that the church is handling this in a way that they're they're not at all. Exactly. And a lot of this, too, I mean, to be fair, it is a failure of journalism as well, that these statements that were made by bishops and church officials for decades here were taken at face value. As reporters, we should not, regardless of whether it's a Catholic church or whether it's a company or a religious, any other religious institution, we should not be taking the claims of people at face value. Our job is to fact check um, in service of the public. And so what you saw here was this narrative developed that was fundamentally false, and it picked up steam. And when we got to 2002, you saw national reporters as well talking about uh, Bishop Flynn as a bold choice for the church, that he was a great reformer, basically just accepting the claims of, of both Flynn himself and his friends that he was doing the right thing on this issue. I just want to quickly bring back in David Altamari from the Hartford Current uh, on this notion of a failure of journalism, something that was so systemic for so long and that we only began to really look into uh, in the early 2000s. Can you just talk about that, Dave? Well, it was... Louisiana really was the start of this whole thing. Jason um, was the one that really got into this issue. Uh, I think part of the part of it is there were really not a lot of religion reporters. Uh, like uh, we never had a re- we did have a religion reporter for quite a while. Matter of fact, uh, he and Jason broke a big story about uh, another group. Um, uh, but uh, I think a lot of reporters and a lot of papers. Um, because some of these stories were in court, and so there were different venues, uh, I think they kind of slipped through the cracks, and that the religion reporters, such as they were, were not focused on digging into documents and looking into allegations like that. And the court reporters uh, either weren't looking for it or weren't aware that some of the stuff was going on right on their noses. 
Uh, Madeline, can you talk about what has happened after your reporting and what has, what changes have, have come to, to the church in, in the Twin Cities area and in Minnesota? Sure. So this really shocked parishioners here and just the general public. There were many resignations of priests, church officials. The archdiocese earlier this year filed for bankruptcy in response to hundreds of victims coming forward saying that they were planning to sue uh, the archbishop here, Archbishop John Ninestead, resigned, as did another bishop here, and Archbishop Ninestead's top deputy resigned as well. And then earlier this year as well, the uh, Ramsey County attorney here, the prosecutor in St. Paul, he filed criminal charges against the archdiocese. And so what's happening now? I mean, is this, as we were talking about earlier, cases continue to surface here in Connecticut. I can only imagine that with the release of Spotlight, more cases will begin to come forward. What What's the story that you're telling right now, Madeline, in Minnesota? Well, right now we're tracking closely the bankruptcy. We just saw, of course, in the, the Milwaukee Archdiocese, what looks to be near the end of a very contentious bankruptcy. So we're wondering if that's what we're looking, we're going to be seeing here as well. And so we'll be covering that closely. And then also the criminal um, case is just getting underway. Uh, They had just their first hearing, so we'll be following that as well. Is there something that you've learned personally through telling this story that is maybe a takeaway for for the rest of your career and the way in which you do your work now? I think, yes, I think that um, a couple things. One is to resist this urge to... Um, believe a good story. You know, I mean, this is something that obviously didn't just take this story to realize that. But, you know, it's really true that when you look back at the cycle of coverage, um, of course, Jason Barry first, and then other reporters since then, that it seems like over time, there was this idea of this is a scandal that is in the past, and that reporters at a certain point would, Jason Barry is not one of these, but other reporters would just kind of move on and say it's time for healing, it's time to look at something else. But the cover-up had continued. And so I think there's a responsibility not only to expose a cover-up, but to stay on that story and make sure that as best as you can find out what is actually continuing to happen so that you don't just drop it and then 10 or 20 years we're back in the same place. The, The man we just had on, Jim Hackett, who told his story and has been telling his story for now 10 years, seems in many ways to have have had his life made quite a bit better by being able to come forward, by having a settlement, and then being able to to share in this process. I can only imagine, Madeline, you've met with many survivors of abuse. Can you talk about the impact that this has had on their lives, being able to tell their story and being able to actually affect some change in the church? I think, you know, of course, it's hard to speak for all survivors of abuse, but I think for many this was a really key moment in their process of trying to deal with this to finally see the truth be known about their offenders um, and, more importantly, in many cases, about church officials who took dis- made decisions that put them in harm's way in the first place and then covered up their abuse once they reported it internally. And also, you know, these are families who had been misled for so many years. There was a story that I did about an abusive priest, and I just, in passing, mentioned a detail that he had died of, I believe, a heart attack um, at some point decades earlier. And a person called me and said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Our family was told by the church like 30 or 40 years ago that our coming forward had stressed out this priest so much that he had died um, of the stress, and that wasn't true. So they had lived with this guilt this complicated guilt that they had basically contributed to the death of a priest, and even that part of the story wasn't true. So I think it's it's so important 
when we're dealing with any crime or trauma to just know what happened. And that's the best service that I can give as a reporter. But And your, your documentary tells the story of, of people who essentially, uh, even at this moment in which uh, they are clearly um, coming forward with with stories that are so painful and so difficult for them, and they're trying to seek some redress, they're still concerned about the the priests themselves. They're still concerned about the impact that their actions are having on these people who who abuse them, which is which is fascinating and heartbreaking to me, and I'm sure to you. You know, a lot of these people, you know, they're good Catholics, and they say, "Look, you know, we have to have compassion for everyone," and it is very uh, sad to see situations where. Uh, victims had that compassion years later for their abusers, but the church did not extend that same compassion to them. Dave, a last question for you. Do you think that any of this um, changes substantively what what we see in the Catholic Church today? Obviously, uh, a lot of work has been done, and a lot of people have uh, settled, and a lot of stories have been told, but do you think that this changes anything moving forward? I would say probably somewhat. I mean, I still think there's a culture there of, of you know, keeping these things secret. Uh, you have people, you know, the same people who are in charge, relatively speaking. Um, I do think there's more of an awareness of it. There's more of an awareness of it amongst uh, uh, police, amongst, um, you know, D- DCF would be DCF here, for example, uh, amongst legislators. So laws that ch- have been changed to to make it easier uh, in most places to sue for victims to sue now. So I, I but I do think there is there is some more awareness of it to be fair to the church. There are there it's not it's not what it was where it was a routine thing where everything was kept quiet. Uh, Dave Altamari, a reporter for the Hartford Current. Thank you, Dave. And thanks also to Madeline Barron, an investigative reporter for Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, we'll have links to her amazing reporting, Betrayed by Silence. Uh, Madeline, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Our program today was produced by Lydia Brown. Continue this conversation at wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.